This is Steve Donahue. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Podcast, helping you build your legacy. This episode is number 252, and this is going to be an exposition of Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, which I gave recently to the church in which I pastor, Mount Tabor Baptist Church. And uh, if you want to get additional information, get some notes as well as uh, some resources available, make sure you check out number 252 on the webpage. Thanks for listening. Well, there are a few places around the globe that you can go where you do not encounter snakes. Uh, I lived in Alaska for a while. Of course, it was too cold for snakes up there. There are other places in uh, northern Europe, and there are other places uh, around the globe where you uh, aren't encountering snakes. And one of the places, or several of the places, are actually on islands. Do you know that there are, there are no snakes on Hawaii, even though it would be a perfect place for snakes? And there are also no snakes on Madagascar Island, New Zealand, and in Ireland. And uh, all those places are uh, great places for snakes, and yet because they are islands and because they were separated before snakes were able to get from the mainlands to those islands, uh, they are freed from snakes. And so they are great places to go or live if you don't like snakes. Uh, but, you know, the reality is and the sad truth is that there is no place that we can go as Christians. There is no church that we can attend. There is no uh, geographical location. There is no denomination in which we can be a part where there are not spiritual snakes. 
By that I mean that there are not those who will seduce us or try to seduce us away into false doctrines. Seduce us away into um, things to believe that are contrary to the scriptures. I like, one, I like the way one of uh, the old confessions of faith says uh, with regards to this. It says this Catholic, meaning universal, church has at sometimes more and sometimes less been visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and air, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. And so what we are reminded of over and over again in the scriptures, in this passage that we're going to look at today, as well as almost every book of the Bible, we are reminded of the fact that there are going to be those who come into the church, who come into the covenant people of God, who are a part of of what is called the people of God, who actually are designing their lives in such a way that they actually seduce the people away from God. And so we are reminded of that very truth here in this passage, if you recall, we have uh, began to look at all the dangers that can uh, approach a Christian. And Peter is addressing some of those. We looked at the importance of what it is to know the truth about our salvation. That's the first part of chapter one. And then we also are told we must know the truth about scriptures and what the scriptures are to us. That's the second part of chapter one. And here in chapter two, we are told that we must know the truth about our seducers, the truth about our seducers. And uh, namely, we are to notice three dangers or three uh, aspects of these seducers that um, help us to understand who the enemy is. And the first one is this. Uh, The danger of the seducers we are to understand. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. And uh, one of the the reasons why they are so dangerous is because they are ever-present. Look with me in verse 1. It says, Therefore there were, excuse me, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. What's he getting at? The point he's getting at is he's saying, look, there has always been and there always will be those who creep into the church trying to lead people astray. Nearly all of the New Testament letters and all of the Old Testament letters seem to indicate that this is the reality. If you look at the history of Israel, they were continually being led astray into the worship of the Canaanite gods and the Babylonian gods and the Assyrian gods and all the the nations around them and the way in which they worship. When we come to the New Testament, we see reminder after reminder of, of how the people of God tend to go astray uh, by the dangers of these seducers. Now, what is the reason why false teachers are so dangerous is that they are everywhere and at all times. Even uh, Eve, uh, from the beginning, Satan had been in the business of trying to deceive God's people in false teachers. So we must not be surprised when we encounter false teachers in our present day. There has never been a time in history where false teachers were not present and there never will be in the ages to come except for uh, when he finally comes back as our Lord to do away with all that is contrary to him. Further, there is not a geographic place where we can go where false teachers 
are not present. So one of the dangers is that they are everywhere and at all times. Secondly, they bring in destructive heresies. Look with me also in verse 1. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false, pre- false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. The word heresy here emphasizes the divisive nature of their teaching. One of the best ways uh, to destroy God's people is to divide them. God wants people, his people to be united around sound doctrine. And yet you have these false teachers coming in trying to divide them around false doctrine. The word destructive here is a reference uh, to eternal destruction. This is not just a minor in-house debated doctrine, but something like denying the Lord who actually is their Lord. It is so important to guard against such destructive heresies because eternal life is at stake. And we are told here that these false teachers actually denied the Lord themselves. This uh, carries the idea of they refused to allow the Lord to be their Lord. So they, on one hand, they claim to be Christians, and yet they refuse to submit to Christ himself and who he is and what he is requiring of them. It says here that uh, they bought them or he bought them. And I, I believe what they're saying here is that they are saying that they are one of his, even though they truly uh, we're not. And, you know, we see a lot of people today. We encounter a lot of people today who call themselves Christians. And yet when you look at their life, uh, there seems to be no evidence, no fruit that they really are. Uh, it, it reminds me of what um, Deuteronomy 32 verses 5 and 6 says. It says they have corrupted themselves. This is speaking about Israel, who, of course, was supposed to be the people of God. It says they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? And so the point that the, uh, uh, Moses is trying to make there in, verse, or in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy is that these are the people who are supposed to be the people of God. And yet they were demonstrating themselves that they weren't. And so it says that they will bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now this could either talk about their physical death or it could be the judgment of hell at the end. We'll see that. Uh, later on in just a moment they will reap what they sow they are sowing destruction so they themselves will reap destruction in god's providence seems then that the major teaching of what they were doing here the danger that they were teaching was that they were claiming to be christians and yet in reality they were not submitting to christ himself thirdly another danger that we find here is that they will be popular they will be popular look with me also in verse two it says and many will follow their destructive ways. It is indeed a popular message to uh, claim to be Christians and yet not submit to Christ. Most people profess Christ this way. They say that they're good to go because they're Christians. And yet when you look at their life, there's very little fruit of it. As a result, it says the way of truth will be blasphemed. Um, Isn't this not the case as well? Someone who professes faith in Christ and yet they live like a heathen. And when the heathen looks at it, they say, well, they live no differently than I do. And, of course, the name of Christ then is blasphemed. Doesn't it seem that the most popular pastors of today's generation are those who proclaim false doctrine? Now, there are good pastors, pastors out there who are proclaiming truth and have big churches. Uh, but for the most part, those who have really big churches are not proclaiming the truth. Let me give you an example. Joel Osteen, some of you all know who that is. Um, he pastors uh, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. 
Uh, they average over 40,000 people each Sunday morning. Can you imagine? Now, they have several, church, several services that uh, they do that. Of course, there are many more who watch him on television and watch him or listen to him on the radio. And uh, he teaches a doctrine called the Word of Faith Doctrine, which carries this idea that um, it is your words themselves have a power and that uh, you have faith in those words. So if you repeat something over again, if you continue to say certain words in your mind over and over again, those actual words have pay, uh, have power. And if you have faith in that power to say those things over again, then that which you say will come to pass. And popular teaching. 40,000 people are hearing this week in and week out. What would, what would uh, most rather do? Come to a church that has a few tens of people or come to a church that has 40,000 people? You see, it is a desire for us, typically, to be one to be in the crowd of popularity. I mean, that's from the very beginning. When you go to school, we want to be in the popular crowd. And uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop with that. You know, if there's a sports team everybody's liking, everybody likes to like that sports team. If there's a, a church that everybody seems to want to go to, everybody seems to want to go to that church. And so it seems that there are those who will be very popular who, in fact, are false teachers. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, broad is the way and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who find it. But narrow is the way and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Remember this. Just because something is popular does not make it good or right. In fact, when it comes to the purity of the gospel, it's very opposite is true. That is very often what we find is that which is not very popular is actually sound doctrine. And then they will exploit through deception. It's another reason why they are dangerous. They will exploit through deception. Look with me in verse 3. It says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their destruction has not been idle and the destruction does not slumber. Their motivation then is covetousness. They are not motivated by love of others, but rather they are motivated by love of money. Deceptive words. They lie for personal gain. Is this not what we see in the Word of Faith movement? Joel Osteen's book, and you know, I hate to keep hammering on him, but he's the most, <laughs> you know, the easiest target to, to, to look at. And there are others, obviously. But in his book, Your Best Life Now, which, by the way, has sold over 4 million copies it twists the scriptures to present this word of faith false teaching. It's based on the idea that God wants everyone to be happy, healthy, and prosperous. Great message, isn't it? Don't we all want to be happy, healthy, and prosperous? What a great message everyone seems to want. And yet, what is the problem with that? The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecutions. So on the one hand, we can either choose to be following after Christ and suffer persecution, or we can have our best life now. <laughs> what do we choose? Notice the suffering of the false teachers here. God does not, or God does want to bless us in some way, yes. Uh, does he want us to have joy? Yes, he wants us to have joy. But the blessings that he wants to give us do not often come the way that the world wants them to come. Watch as Jesus say at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even the very title of his book is misleading, Our Best Life Now. Is our best life now? <laughs> no. 
Our best life is yet to come when we are with the Lord in eternity. So the false teachers are dangerous because they are ever-present. They teach destructive heresies. They're very popular, and they exploit through deception. But secondly, I think we need to notice the doom of the seducers, the doom of our seducers. We see this in verses 4 through 10. And notice, first of all, their destruction is mentioned in verse 1 as well as in verse 3, but it's more specifically explained here in these verses. And uh, to show the certainty of their judgment, what Peter does is he explains that God has shown a pattern of judgment upon disobedience and upon those who are contrary to his ways. And he, he uses three examples. The first one is his judgment upon the angels who sinned. In verse 4 it says, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, and by the way the word for there, if, or it says for if, should really be for since. And he actually picks back up in verse 9. Um, really what he's talking about there. So if you want to read it in that way, we might say, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. And so the rest of it is kind of a parenthesis, but it's uh, using the examples to explain his point. And so it talks about here the angels who sinned in verse 4. Now, how do we understand this? This is a, a difficult Understanding, And by the way, uh, we can't really avoid looking at the passage in Jude, Jude chapter 1. Of course, Jude is only one chapter, but uh, looking at Jude 1, because in it, um, there is a lot of parallel passages. And so we're going to refer over to Jude on a regular basis uh, as we go through this. But in Jude chapter 6, it says this, But I want you to understand or remind you, though once you knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal life. So he uses the same three examples here as he does over, or as Jude does over in his letter. And so what are we to make of these angels who somehow left their appropriate place and as a result of that are bound up in a certain place? And there are some differences of interpretation on this. And we don't know, the bottom line is, we don't know exactly what took place. Uh, We do know in the scriptures that there are some uh, demons who are bound up and are unable to be loosed. And then there are demons that are loosed today and are actually around and about doing their work of evil. And uh, why some are bound and some are not bound and uh, what it was that actually took place that would cause this, we do not know. Some have understood this to be a reference to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, when it says this. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. And the daughters were born to them that the sons of God and that word sons of God uh, very often the scripture refers to spiritual beings, heavenly hosts and demons. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. So the idea that some people have is that there were uh, demon uh, demon indwelt humans that came into the daughters of men and um, created a kind of a demigod type creature and and um, I don't know 
I don't know what the, uh, what the solution is to that. But all we do know is that there are certain demons who left their appropriate state. And as a result of that, God has imprisoned them. And uh, there are other demons who are not imprisoned. But the point that Peter is trying to make with this is that he judged the demons. He judged them when they left their proper state. And so if he is able to do that, will he not also judge the false teachers? And indeed, he will. The second example we find in verse 5, and that is he also judged those living in Noah's day. It says, and he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Despite what the the uh, most recent Noah movie is, uh, which doesn't have a lot to do with Noah other than the name. Um, the reality of the scriptures are that there were only eight humans that were saved after the flood. And that were uh, Noah and his three children, his wife. And uh, their wives and um, all the rest of mankind was destroyed. And so what is Peter's point with that? Peter's point is that just as God judged the world that then was saving out those eight people. So God will judge the false teachers. And then he says, in case you haven't been convinced yet by the judgment of the angels and the judgment upon the people in Noah's day. I'll give you one more example. And that is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And so what do we know about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? We know that, of course, they were uh, infested with all kinds of sin and sinners. And and as a result of that, God destroyed them with fire and brimstone. And we look at that area today in the Middle East, and there are salt pillars everywhere. And it is, um, there's uh, all kinds of burned up chard and salt and Uh, God brought his judgment of fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is a reminder for us that there is indeed a judgment. And then we get to this very interesting description of Lot. And I find it very interesting for a number of reasons. But it says in verse 7, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And um, it, I, I find it very interesting that Peter here refers to Lot as righteous Lot. <laughs> when I read his life, um, I would come to a different conclusion. This is the, the Lot who seemed to compromise in a lot of different ways and even offered his daughters to the men of the town to be raped. And, um, and then when he left the town and uh, he was uh, he didn't look back, which was a good thing. So he bade the Lord there. He did leave. And so I guess that's why he's called righteous, because in faith he left the city and obeyed. Um, But then after they get outside, he actually uh, gets drunk by his two daughters. And each night he has uh, intercourse with them and produces children through them, which became the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so um, not really a upstanding righteous man and yet Peter identifies him as a righteous man and I think that the point for us with that is that he was righteous only just as we are through faith it was not by his merit certainly that someone could look at him and say well here's a good upstanding citizen that we could look to as a model for righteousness certainly not it was only righteous through faith and he demonstrated that faith when he left the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in following after what God had commanded 
And then in verse 9, notice the relationship between the doom of the false teachers and the deliverance of the true believers. We see this with Noah, where his family was delivered out, Lot was delivered out, and yet the judgment was there. And so in verse 9 it says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day. Of judgment, so we have uh, we have a judgment that goes both ways. We have a judgment of those who are delivered out, and we have a judgment of those who are delivered in. And Jesus refers to this in a number of different ways, but we see him speaking about the separating of the sheep and the goats on that day. Those who are on the right hand and those who are on the left hand, and certainly there is this relationship and judgment between those who were delivered out and those. Who are delivered up. God does not delight in the judgment of sinners, but his holiness and his justice requires it. One of the main elements of false teachers is that God will not judge sin. And of course, Peter points out in verses 4 through 9 that God indeed will judge sin. He has in the past, he certainly will in the future. We must guard against the false teachers, but we must not worry that they will not get what they deserve, certainly. They will, and God will bring about his judgment in his ways, in his timing. And so we can trust him for that. And then verses 10 through 17, what we find is we find the depravity of the, of the seducers. The depravity of the seducers. In uh, verses 10 through 17, it says this, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, where angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. And so one of the one of the characteristics of their depravity is that they are arrogantly despising those who are in authority. Now, the word dignitaries here is actually glorious ones. And the idea seems to be that he's talking about uh, the understanding of the spiritual hosts, the demons and the angels that are about them. And the idea is that these false teachers were not afraid to speak out about demons and speak out in against those who are in spiritual places. And it says that even the angels in heaven don't speak a reviling accusation against the demons, but let God be judged. And so in Jude verses one or chapter one, uh, verses eight, nine, it says, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so these false teachers are so pride in their position, so arrogant in their association that they are they are willing to even say that they have some kind of control or favor or authority over the angels. When in reality, they do not. They also speak very arrogantly in verse 12. It says, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of those things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. So he draws a picture here. And the picture that we might draw, some of you are uh, ranchers and have some cattle and things like that. And you look out into the fields and you see the cows and, you know, they, they do what cows do very well. They eat grass. They give birth to other calves. And they kind of, you know, walk around in a herd. That's what cows do, right? And, and to think that they would know something about what it is to be a human would be ridiculous. They're cows. 
And yet what the false teachers are doing is they're saying, well, we know all this stuff about what it means to be an angel. And, you know, we know all these things about the spiritual host. And in reality, he's saying, you know, you're just like a dumb brute beasts in how you speak. And so they speak ignorantly and arrogantly. They are also religious hypocrites in verse 13. It says, and will receive wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. In other words, what are they doing? They're saying that they are part of the fellowship of God. They're feasting in the love feast. They're participating in the Lord's Supper. They're doing all these things as though they're a part of the church. But in reality, they're so arrogant that they even carouse during the daytime doing their evil. And so they are hypocrites, religious hypocrites. Verse 14, it says that they are trained sinners. Having eyes full of adultery that they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Notice the wording that he uses here. It says they cannot cease from sin. They are full of adultery. The word full of adultery means that they, they, they cannot even look at another woman without having lustful thoughts of her. It says also that they, are, uh, they cannot cease from sin. They are so enticed by sin, they have no other choice but to sin. It says they entice an unstable souls. They prey upon those who are, who are um, uh, immature in the faith, those who have recently been converts or those who are unstable in their, in their uh, confidence of the Lord. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. The idea of trained here just is the word that is used of exercising for an athlete. When they exercise their body, exercise their muscles so that it might be brought into subjection so that they can accomplish their task. So it is that these false teachers are trained in covetousness. They've so disciplined themselves that they're trained for the activity. And so they're, they're professional sinners, you might say. And uh, certainly, indeed, uh, what, a, what a horrible state says their heart is trained in covetous practices. But not only that, in uh, verses 15 and 16, it says that they, they compromise for money. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Yeah, I don't have time to go back to uh, Numbers chapter 20 through 22, where it talks about Balaam. But you'll know Balaam was a, a false prophet who uh, was basically a prophet for hire. And he would go and he would... He would uh, prophesy whatever anybody wanted to prophesy as long as they paid him. And uh, so uh, Balak was going to go and uh, have him come and prophesy a curse against Israel. But God wouldn't have it. And so he prevented him by a donkey. And so God overruled his, his um, false prophecy in that hand. But he is used perpetually as an example of one who was sold out. For the highest bidder and would say whatever was necessary in order to receive his wages. And then they offer empty hope in verses 17 through 19. It says they are wells without water. Now, can you imagine being in a deserted area into a region, arid region of the Middle East? And, and uh, you know that there's supposed to be a well in the upcoming uh, city or upcoming town and you you travel that 15 miles by foot over the day in the desert area and you're you're thirsty and you're hot and you get to the city and you go to the well and you take the the rock off the well and you look down and there's no water that's the way it is for these false teachers they they offer all kinds of great blessings all kinds of hopes and you put your hope in them and you get there and you realize it's empty there's nothing here 
He also uh, says in verse 17, they are clouds carried by the tempest. In other ways, that they're, they're vapor carried by the tempest. The idea is that you look off in the distance and you have, now we've had plenty of rain. <laughs> um, but if you remember a few years back where we had, you know, almost like two months where there wasn't any rain, it was really super hot and the ground was just parched and, you know, you would see clouds off in the distance and you'd think, yes, finally rain. And it would kind of like go around you. And you're like, oh, no. Well, that's how these false teachers are. They give you a hope and you look and say, oh, maybe this is maybe this is the answer to my problems. And you put your hope in their teaching and you realize it's just empty. They're clouds, tempests for whom it deserved the blackness of darkness forever, forever. And then in verse 18, there are great swelling words of emptiness. I like the description there. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through the lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. It's like a balloon that is puffed up with hot air, easily be popped. So it is with these false words, the great swelling words of emptiness. And the word allure here, uh, the promises of liberty, slaves of corruption, the word allure is the idea of being deceived away, just like a fisherman will throw a lure out there, you know, and uh, the fish will try to bite on it. So these, they, they allure people in, they entice people in with all these lofty promises, all these great ideas that this is the answer to all your problems, and then people come in, and what happens? It's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. They actually try to allure those who have actually been saved, those who are um, on the way to being delivered, and uh, they are enticed away. They are hardened to the truth in verses 20 through 22. It says, If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them if they had not known the way of righteousness than having known it, turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, some have understood this to mean that there are Christians who can actually fall away from the faith. I don't believe that's what this teaches because other places in the scripture seem to say that uh, that is not possible. And so what is being referred to here is what I believe is that they, they have they have heard the gospel. They have actually been in the community of faith. They have received some of the blessings of being a part of the community of faith. And yet they never really were a part of the covenant of faith. And when you're in a situation like that where you encounter the truth. And you're encountering the blessings of being a part of a community of truth. And yet you're enticed away and your heart becomes hardened because you look back and you say, oh, I'm not trying that again. That didn't work. And you become hardened. So it says it's better if they'd never actually tasted of it. Because now that they've tasted of it and rejected it. What, what other hope is there for them? And so we see this description given to them. In uh, verses uh, 22. But as it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. I don't need to go into description about that. Uh, the, um, the disgusting nature of that is already apparent. And so the idea here is that those who never really were saved, but only were pretenders, when they turn away, they just go back to their true nature. And it's revealed. And then also a sow having washed to the wallowing in the mire. You can clean up a sow, but what happens? It goes right back to the mud, doesn't it? That's the way it is with the false teachers. 
They may teach a good game. They may preach a good game. They may show all this hope and they may sound really great. But in reality, what do they do? They just go back uh, to the evidence that they really were not saved. Jesus said that by their fruit, you will know them. He also said there will be some in the day of judgment who will say they did all kinds of things in his name. But Jesus responded to them by saying he did not know them. The false teachers may say what sounds good on the surface, but their life demonstrates the true reality of what they teach and believe. So Peter wants his readers to be sure that we understand the danger of the false teachers, the doom of the false teachers and the depravity of the false teachers. The greatest threat that we have today by false teachers is a false gospel, just as it was in those days. And I believe that this comes by way of having a false motivation for coming to Christ. It is similar to what Peter was encountering as well. Those who profess Christ for their own gain, this results in false conversions. I want us to consider the story of two passengers who both were told to wear parachutes, but for different reasons. The first passenger riding on the airplane was told uh, by the flight attendants to put on the parachute because it would improve his flight. Basically, that if he put on the parachute, he would experience his best life now. He is skeptical at first, but he decides to give it a try and puts the parachute on. Immediately, he feels its weight upon his shoulders and how difficult it is to sit upright. The other passengers begin to look at him and laugh and mock him. At this point, he pulls off the parachute, throws it to the ground in disgust. His heart is filled with bitterness towards those who gave him the parachute because as far as he's concerned, he was told an outright lie. And it will be a long time before anyone gets him to put that thing back on again. The second passenger is told to put the parachute on because at any moment throughout the flight, he would have to jump out of the plane at 25,000 feet. He gladly puts the parachute on, not noticing its weight upon his shoulders, nor the other passengers mocking him. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen if he were to jump without the parachute. So let's relate this to modern evangelism. In the same way, there are people filling the churches all over this nation that are falsely promised that if they give Jesus a try, their life will be better. That they give, uh, give him their life and they will have their best life now through faith. However, they give this Christianity a try and then life happens and struggles come and they throw in the towel think Christianity doesn't work. Their life didn't get better. They leave the church and become hardened to it. Instead, if we first come to realize our sinfulness and the certainty of our destruction that awaits us for our sin, and we are told that if we put on Christ, he delivers us from the wrath of God and eternal torment in hell, we will not leave The life or we will not leave the faith when the hard times come. Instead, we will hold fast to Christ, even closing, even closer, awaiting our eternal redemption. This time when the flight comes and it gets bumpy, we do not cast off the Savior. We didn't come for a better flight. We came to be saved from the wrath to come. In fact, tribulation will drive us who truly believe closer to the Father, clinging tightly to the Savior, even looking forward to the jump. If you have come to Christ under the pretense of a better life now, you've been misled. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ to escape the judgment of wrath to come. Don't be deceived by the false teachers of today who preach that you can have your best life now. Our best life is yet to come. We put on Christ not so that we can have our best life now, 
Tell that to the Moldovian or the, uh, the Maldive people who are being persecuted, to the uh, Christians in Afghanistan, the Christians in Iran, the Christians all over the world who are being persecuted, killed, who are taking their children and selling them off into slave trades because they're Christians. Tell them they're having their best life now. No, we don't come because we can have our best life now. We come because we're sinners and we need grace, we need salvation. Let's pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? One day we'll wither away And to this world we'll have to say goodbye But just like the plant that withers away We will leave many seeds behind If today you lost your life What would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?